Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Instrument from the 1993 album In on the Killtaker is musician Andrew Lowe, best known as the singer and guitarist of The Jazz June, and whose current project is called Post Skeleton. Andrew, how are you? I'm really good, man. Thanks. I've been looking forward to this, so I'm glad it all came came to pass. It's really cool to have you. Um, you know, the first thing I, w- I was wondering is, we- we've had a lot of interesting guests on the show, and I guess you're the first person from a band that is almost universally described as an emo band, the Jazz June. Yes. And I was just wondering, because, you know, famously, people say Rites of Spring is basically the, the first band that was referred to as an emo band, you know, along with Embrace 2. And famously, those guys at the time thought it was kind of stupid. I was wondering what your relationship is with that term. Is it something you guys always embraced? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely was like a huge Discord head and Rites of Spring and Minor Threat and every everything back from when I was like a little skate rat when I was like in, I don't know, starting like in sixth grade or something like that. And uh, I think I... You know, I didn't actually know the term until much later on because I was into straight edge and then, you know, hardcore and punk rock. And then it wasn't until I got into college where we actually, I actually wanted to be in a band that wasn't like, you know, super fast <laughs> hardcore. So um, when I started to play, I think at the time, though, I never really thought we could sound anything like Right to Spring because they were just too crazy and amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I never really thought I could hit that level or tried to emulate that. Um, and to be honest, I wasn't really, yeah, I wasn't too familiar with the term, uh, early, early jazz June days. It was most like a, more like a post hardcore thing, I guess, that we were kind of trying to do. And there were bands like Christy Front Drive, um, and then, you know, DC stuff like Hoover and obviously Fugazi. But again, we never thought we could even come close to anything that great, you know? So, um, no, it wasn't like we're like, let's start an emo band. It was more just like, huh, we're... In our, you know, almost 20, we're into hardcore, but that's a bit too aggressive. We started smoking weed, so let's, like, jam out and play some, you know, uh, more melodic tunes and stuff. Um, And then, of course, as usual and as always you become known as a emo band by the cool hardcore kids are like, oh, this fucking emo band. So <laughs> from the very beginning, it was like a, a slang term. So, um, you know, I never really ever thought, oh, I'm an emo kid or I'm an emo band. We were just, that was just like placed on us. Um, and then I suppose we were kind of playing a lot and touring around when it started to become like a more mainstream thing. Um, you know, Jimmy Eat World was in the charts and then later on came My Chemical Romance and all that kind of stuff. So um, I guess then it worked to our favor because it was like, oh, they're an emo band. People like emo. The kids will pay to play to see emo. So I had a, a mixed relationship. Um, I did enjoy Guy's interview on uh, Washed Up Emo. I don't know if you listened to that, but... Um, I did. It was a ba- while ago. Um, I, I need a refresher. Yeah. Well, the, I don't know. I'll, I'll, you know, it was a very long interview, and obviously he says a lot of really cool stuff, as he always does. But I, I really like the fact that he said that he was even like, you know, this term emo, he never really felt any affinity with it. Um, until like years and years later, where he just was like, well, it is, 
it's obviously there's kids who are sort of like, you know, outcast or on the outliers of society who relate to this. And if they're relating to me, like I want to relate to them back. So I kind of feel the same way as like at first I thought it was like this slang term. And then I kind of was like, well, fuck it. Yeah. All right. We're an emo band. So what? What's wrong with that? You know, like what is wrong with being an emo band? Um, obviously, we never took it to like the sort of. Um, you know, black nail polish, uh, <laughs> hot topics thing. So, uh, but I, you know, I, I, now I look back and, and I use it sort of tongue in cheek, but I think it's, um, I'm kind of proud of it, you know, and, and the, the, I mean, the coolest thing is we are on the Rolling Stones list of best emo bands or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, this is actually a cool thing now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's such a confusing term. Like, I, I, I there have got to be not many um, like genres in music that can be misunderstood more. Like, if I, if if somebody has is not that familiar with like the history of of emo bands, and I say like, oh, the Jazz Gene, well, they're an emo band, and they're like, oh, so like, um, it's kind of sound like Saves the Day or or like Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. It's like a completely different thing. Different kind of emo. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like kind of in hardcore. Well, in like metal, there's like crabcore and grindcore. And, you know, to some people, it just sounds like a bunch of noise. But obviously, the people who are really in it understand the nuances between, you know, grindcore and thrashcore or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's funny, though, because I would have thought if anyone said to me... Like, even though all this we've had, if someone said, oh, they're an emo band, I'd be like, never mind, not going to bother listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, let me ask you, do people consider, through doing your interviews, is Fagazi an emo band or no? I, I generally would say no. I don't think many people okay. refer to them that way. Yeah, clearly they have, you know, some notable origins in that. And um, But I think a lot of people you know, they have hardcore origins too. And I don't think many people would call Fugazi a hardcore band. They sort of true uh, synthesized a bunch of different things and became something entirely different, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess they're sort of genre-defying because between albums and even between songs, they just weave between so many different styles. And then there's so many things that, even though it's based in hardcore and punk, that they've just completely taken to the next level and made their own, that no one has been able to sort of reach, really. Some people get close, but no one's been able to touch, in my opinion, anything that Fagazi's done. Yeah, I and I think also... There are bands like I've I talked to um, a couple of the guys from Q and Not You in the in the course of doing this. Um, I I think a, a lot of people would refer to them as sort of like a Fugazi influenced bands, but I don't think many people mm -hmm. would call them an emo band uh, or a hardcore no. band. So yeah, they're almost uh, Fugazi's genre defying and genre defining. Also, it's like their own kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And if, if you're influenced by them, you don't necessarily sound like any of their influences. If that makes sense. No, definitely. I mean, I, you know, like I said, because we never, obviously, I even, you know, today, listening to instrument, just thought, man, I could wish I could be in a band that sounded like this. You know, I mean, I've been playing music for whatever, 25 years. And it's still one of those bands where I couldn't sit down and think like, okay, I'm going to write a Fugazi song, because I would immediately know it was just inferior to anything that they were doing. And, and it would just feel forced and weird and fake. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I'd, lo I'd love to I'd love it if they just asked me to be like their tambourine player. You know what I mean? Just anything. <laughs> that would be great. Oh, <laughs> Um, well, do you want to back up a little and, and tell me, uh, if you can remember, you know, how you got, first got into Fugazi, um, how that developed? Yeah. And, you know, stop me if I, if I go on too long of a rant. Um, 
But basically, it all started off with, um, you know, skateboarding. And like, I had a lot of older friends in my neighborhood, and I had an older brother who's about four years older. So they introduced me to a lot of really cool bands like the Misfits and Dead Kennedys at, I don't know, I want to say like fifth grade or something like that, or younger when I was, um, you know, sort of like preteens. So, um, yeah, so I found out about Minor Threat. And like, I don't know, as soon as you hear a Minor Threat song, you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, just that guitar sound, it just kind of like cuts through you. Um, So I immediately fell in love with Minor Threat. And then, um, you know, I guess, again, it was very heavily, it wasn't so much of a big music fan or even really a musician at that point. Um, And then I guess my brother, he was still um, into sort of like hardcore and and that kind of thing. And he got um, uh, 13 songs and... um, I kind of at first didn't really, I was like, huh, this is, doesn't sound like Minor Threat. But of course, you know, I'm like 11 or something like that, or I don't know. Uh, I just didn't get it. And then it wasn't until maybe a few years later that um, I started to kind of like understand what a record label was. And I started to learn about Discord, obviously all through Fugazi. And then I started to get into bands like um, Shudder to Think and Severin, obviously way away from the, the hardcore spectrum. Um, and, uh, it's funny though, because I used to write to, cause they had like, I don't know, I guess it was a mail order, um, catalog or something. I don't know how I got the first one, probably from one of my brother's friends. So I wrote to them, got this mail order catalog, and then I would just write, I would, I would order like a seven inch or something every month. I'd be like autoclave gray matter. And I'd read through, and I like was trying to get like discord. Oh, Oh, you know, one all the way you know, to whatever it was up to at that point. Like I was trying to make this collection. I was just obsessed um, mm-hmm. with Discord. All my money and all my records would be just Discord records. But it was funny because I used to write these notes to like, along with my orders. And I was like, what does a split seven inch mean? <laughs> and they would, and Amanda McKay, his sister and sister would write back and be like, a split seven inches and win two labels. But, and it was like so nice. And I just think back, it's so funny that, you know, it's just this kind of like really young kid with all these really dorky questions. And they like took the time to write back every time. Um, and I've listened to a few of your, I mean, I've listened to like every podcast Ian's had and tried to, you know, watch, you know, as many videos and everything that Guy's been on and everything else and Brendan. Um, and it always seems like this really cool, friendly family. I think a lot of people have said that through your interviews that you've had. It's just like a really nice family friendly environment, which is just so cool. Yeah, that's so true. It, it's funny too, because I remember like I have one memory of I, I also ordered one of those Discord catalogs that like you know, they came bound in an old record sleeve or whatever. I forget. It must have been in like one of the you know, liner note sleeves of one of their CDs that you could write to Discord and like send a dollar or something. I forget what it was. And and uh, they would, you know, send you the catalog. And so I just remember doing that. And I don't know, I guess I had the impression in those early days of like, you know, this was punk rock. Everyone was really tough. So I just wrote exactly. something like one dollar for Discord catalog, like. Like, <laughs> I, I just, I wanted to be sort of like tough and, and like, cool. Not, yeah. Yeah. Not, not give any kind of salutation or whatever. And then, yeah, it, it arrives with me and it has this note from Amanda Mackay and it's like, oh, thank you so much for ordering the catalog. And it was, just, I remember it being so sweet. And I'm like, oh, I had the wrong impression of this whole uh, thing. So, yeah, that's, that's really funny you say that. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously through like, if you're just listening to their music, you would just think they're really, really angry, mean, well, not mean, but, you know, screaming <laughs> people. Um, so I can see how that, how you could have that impression. But um, yeah, so basically then um, I, you know, again, right around the time that I really, really got into, you know, Discord Records type music um, is when In on the Kill Ticker came out. And that was just like, mind blowing to me because it was just right at the right point where I like understood the backstory. I knew about some of the older discord bands. So then when that came out and then I had an older friend again, who, um, he was like one of these Doogie Howser guys who, um, he's graduated high school like three years earlier or something. And he went oh. to this place called Mammoth university. So he would, and he had a car too. Um, and I would go and stay there. So I'd be like, Oh, I'm going to stay at Justin's house. But obviously he lived in a dorm. So we would just drive to like any gig. Um, and you know, my, my, my parents would have never let me at like 15 to really do that, especially going, I grew up in New Jersey. So going into New York city was always like a big deal. Um, yeah. So I went to go see them, as many times as I could from then on. I mean, I saw them at that Roseland um, ballroom. I think they had like three shows there with the Spinanes and Unrest. I saw one of those. Um, and then I saw them at, um, yeah, and uh, well, well, the best story was I saw them at Maxwell's in Hoboken, um, which is like this tiny little, I don't know, 200-person club. And it was it was so cool because... Me and this guy again, Justin, were um, we're like obviously it was sold out in ten seconds. You know, you you know, because Steve Shelley from Sonic Youth owns that place, so obviously it was like all all of his closest friends probably got tickets. So we just drove up and we we're like, ah, oh, let's just see if we can get in. Like maybe someone will be selling one on the door. Then um, we got there and it was just like, no, no one wanted to sell a ticket, nothing. So we went up to Brendan Canty and we're like, yeah, so. Dude, we, I mean, I kind of feel bad because we lied, but we were like, <laughs> we drove from Virginia all the way here in the rain and, and we thought we could just get into the show and uh, it's like sold out and like, we're just, we can't even, you know, we, like we drove for hours in the rain above. And he was just like, he looked at us, he's like, dude, this is like the smallest venue we ever play. This is like a 200 person <laughs> venue. You know what I mean? Like, what what were you thinking? We were just like, really, really played this totally naive, um, you know, story. And then he kind of was like, well, he was really cool though. But he was just kind of like, in a sort of like joking, funny way. It was just like, what were you thinking? Um, and, uh, and then like, Literally, we just stood around waiting, and it was like I don't I can't remember here. A Joan Jet was there. It was like this, like sort of like uh, you know, uh, punk rock sort of um, celebrity night. Everyone was there, and uh, and all of a sudden, like right before they played, Brendan just comes over. He just taps us in, and we walk right through the door, and we go right up to the middle of the stage, and we just see Fugazi play. Um, you know, literally in like this 200 person venue. And it's like the most insane show I've ever seen. And, you know, if I wasn't already like a super Fugazi super fan, that was it. Cause he was so cool and they were just amazing. It was this tight little place and it was just like, oh, they're so good. I mean, I even, you know, I don't know how many of the live um, series you've listened to, but I went back and tried to find a few of the gigs from Hoboken, uh, from Maxwell's to find the one that I went to. And I found some early ones from, I think it was even before they um, recorded their first album. And man, they're just so tight live. And I just, every time I went to see them, it just 
blew my mind like how I just couldn't even even though I played guitar at that point it's like I don't know how they get that sound or how how they do that it just seemed so like otherworldly um so um yeah so that was kind of like my young teenage um experience with them but um did you grow up in New Jersey I didn't uh both of my parents were from Patterson New Jersey so we would constantly okay. go on vacations there like I think we didn't have the money to take any real vacations we would just go to my grandparents in New Jersey that was always our vacation Yeah yeah I mean cuz I don't know yeah from there obviously the only place that Fugazi would have played in New Jersey would have been Maxwell's and then you'd have to go into the cities so again I got to see them at Roseland but then anytime they played in DC we would drive down because only like four or five hours from memory um and uh we saw them like the show in the mall um we I'm like, is it the mall I'm like, is that the is that in London the big open field with like the yeah. um yeah um, and then we saw them at just some random place. It was like just on a flyer. You just had to find the, the address. But we would just drive down anytime we could to see them, you know, even if it was like a five-hour drive and then drive right home. Um, and just, yeah, just totally, just totally wouldn't wouldn't miss a Fikazi show if, if I had to. Um, yeah, and then I guess later on in life, um, you know, started playing with the Jazz June. And then um, I guess it was our fourth record. We we had met Jay Robbins at um, a show we played in Philadelphia at the church, and he was really cool. Again, I said, you know, um, hey, we're looking to record this new album. And we had this record from Louisville, Kentucky called Inner Ear, and they were really excited, you know, about uh, uh, the prospect of recording there. I don't even know how the... I don't know. I think it was just like a really brash sort of... Um, kid because i just started talking to jay robinson I'm like yeah can we record with you and he was just like uh yeah I, I guess so and um i don't know somehow then our record label got in touch and then we got really lucky because all of a sudden blue tip was supposed to record an album and i think they went into the studio and realized like they just weren't ready you know it just wasn't happening and all of a sudden jay robbins had two weeks open at inner ear and we literally just jumped in the car and drove down the next day <laughs> with all our gear and started recording there and we and no joke we drove through like the gnarliest snowstorm like on ice all the way to get there because we we're just like we have to get down there this is like the opportunity of a lifetime um so went down there um recorded album called the medicine with jay producing um don zian ziantara is that how you say it he was there kind of just hanging out all again just like i would just pop my head in and be like dude you recorded every single album that i ever love you know and uh <laughs> him and jay him and jay would just like, and obviously i was a huge jawbox fan so i remember i went and got like this big 40 of oh god it's called you ever hear this stuff called steel reserve oh yeah yeah <laughs> super strong stuff so i you know at, i again like you you know with the the mail order thing i was trying to play it cool at first and then i had this thing and i was like you guys are like you're like the boy bands of my youth you know like i just looked <laughs> up to you i just wanted to be you i had your and they just both looked at each other and i think jay said something to don like hey uh do you want to shoot yourself first or, or should i do it you know and uh, <laughs> so you know but they kind of nodded and winked because they're just such nice guys um that even though me being a total dork um, and dork nerding out over it, they were they were just so cool. Um, so yeah, we did that album. I gotta uh, say, by never... the way, it's a great sounding album. I was listening to it just this morning. 
do you want to uh like for any of our listeners who have never heard the jazz june is there like one track that you would recommend them to listen to the track that i like the most um you know what i'm gonna have to google it because i don't even remember um i know like probably get on the bus is a really cool one i don't know um, there's a whole bunch of different songs on there with like different speeds and stuff like that. So put the first song on. I think a lot of people like that one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then basically, um, I think the coolest thing about that album is that just the drums sound incredible. And, yes, uh, I agree. Yeah. And I, and you know, they did something there that they didn't ever do anywhere else as far as wherever I recorded and I actually went to like a recording course and would bring this up in classes and everyone just would be like, Whoa, what a great idea. But they put the drums on a drum riser and put like, and mic the drum riser. So that I guess it was like recording the sort of like uh, vibrations through that sort of like, I don't know, maybe like six inch drum riser. Um, and it just makes it sound really great. And I just thought, why doesn't everyone do that? Um, wow. But, but you know, I think this, the drums just have really cool dry, dry sound that um, I really like. But, you know, um, yeah, we recorded with all our own instruments there, but through that board and with Jay on the on the controls, he made it sound so good. Um, much, you know, 10 times better than sort of like any other recordings we had. Although we did go to the guy from Grey Matters um, recording studio. Um, I can't remember what it's called now, but that was in DC. Um, but yeah, Inner Ear is just like a holy place. I mean, they all built it, didn't they? So... Uh, you know, they, every sort of like nook and cranny was like to their sound preference. Did you find that when you were there that just every you couldn't play a bad note? Um, it yeah, it was such a whirlwind for me. Um, and also I was technically in like Silver Sonia, so I I don't know oh, if that right. was okay. actually like a space that was sort of built separately. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but I just remember having a blast for sure. Yeah, well, I, I, so then, you know, fast forward. So then, yeah, and then um, went went to see Fugazi again with Lungfish at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. Another, oh, I almost forgot to tell this story. This is really funny. So I had this, like, crazy friend called Shank. Um, obviously not his God-given name, but uh, <laughs> he um, he went to the, the gig at the Electric Factory and... Uh, he brought a smoke bomb with him for some reason. And I thought he just, I think he just thought it would be funny to throw the smoke bomb on stage. So he like lights this thing, you know, it's a huge venue. So really sort of like anonymous throws it on stage. All of a sudden Guy just kind of like freaks out, not really knowing what it is. Then he takes like a cup of water and pours it over the smoke bomb. And he's like, they stop the set and they're like, who the fuck, who threw a smoke smoke bomb on stage? And, um, you know, we didn't say anything, but then this girl that we were with raises her hand and we're like, oh my God, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? And she was like, it was me. And they're like, it was you. And she was like, no, just kidding. And then like, because the whole crowd just turned around and looked at us. And I was like, (laughs) oh my God, what the hell have you done? (laughs) But um, luckily, like nothing happened and they just kept playing. But um, anyway, that was a random flashback I just thought of. But um, you guys are anyway, real so rascals, like endlessly harassing Brendan Canty with like lies and <laughs> smoke know. bombs. I know. And it's like, they're the nicest, most honest people. And <laughs> for some reason, uh, to be honest, all these stories, 
they were never my idea. You know, going to Maxwell's, I'm always the kind of person like, no, 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 it's not going to work. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. And he'd be like, no, come on. So I'm always just, I don't know, uh, 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 with people who have a little bit more uh, uh, confidence, I guess. Um, Yeah. So anyway, sorry. So keeping on track here, my next experience was I worked for an audio magazine in London called Audio Pro International. I became the editor after I moved. I've been here about 13 years now. So I lived in New Jersey and I moved to to London about 13 years ago. Got a job at a magazine and, uh, you know, it was like covered live sound and recording or recorded sound and broadcast sound. So I started to just make it my own little fanzine. So I reached out to Don um, on his website and, you know, just got a reply pretty quickly after and just was like, yeah, I'd love to do an interview. So I... Did it over the phone. Um, really, really sweet, nice guy, just as I had remembered from sort of 10 years before. And um, and then he, I was like, oh, do you have any pictures that I could use in the in the magazine? And of course, he didn't have like, I don't, I'm sure he had email, but he was like, oh, yeah, so I'll have to, I'll have to dig up some pictures. So um, all of a sudden, like, this package arrived from Discord, and it was um, someone who worked there who was like, Here's a bunch of pictures of Don and setting up in your ear studio. Um, and they're like all these kind of like, yeah, printed off pictures of like, like um, Guy and Ian, like putting up, you know, wood in the studio and just like these really precious moments in history. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, they just sent these to me, wow. um, you know, for the interview and, 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 and to use for Don's uh Don's the layout for Don's interview. Um, and again, it was just like this really nicely written letter, like Don is the most amazing recording artist and human being. And please, you know, uh, you know, just whatever, be respectful of him as if, you know, cause they probably might not have known that I was such a fan. You know what I mean? I was, yeah. might've just thought I was just some dude in London who had no idea. So, um, it was just this really, really, really nice letter that they had written about Don and, and these all these really great pictures of building in your ear. So I still have them. They're up in my room just like, you know, just really cool. So, so yeah, that that's... Do those pictures exist online anywhere? Any way our, our listeners can see them? If I, if I dig them up, I'll put them online somewhere. I'll send them to you and maybe you can figure out where they go. But um, yeah, they, they're not the greatest. I mean, you know, there's kind of like, um, it's like an empty room at that point um, with like some some, you know, pieces of wood and Ian kind of staring at something, you know, holding his chin thinking, hmm, what should we do with that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then some of Don kind of like wiring the board and things like that. So um, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll dig him up. If you do that, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Well, the thing is, the the other thing I kind of wanted to say too is, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because now I'm about like 43, I guess. Um, And like, you know, through finding it out about your podcast and knowing he's going to have the interview and reading back on um, the 33 and the third book and just listening to Fugazi again, you know, revisiting them again. Um, you know, I, it, I did realize like how so many of their sort of like their ethics kind of just bled through my life, you know, to the way I kind of like treat people and the way I, I'm at work and kind of like the way I've set up my whole life, which is just a crazy thing to think that there's just like this band who had such a huge influence on me Um and, you know, it's funny, too, because it's such a juxtaposition because so many of the other, like, hardcore bands, 
you know, some of the other singers and lyricists were like these criminals talking about kicking ass and, you know, don't step to me, you know. <laughs> and, you know, again, Minor Threat and Fugazi and everything Ian's done especially has just been so positive and like uh, such the opposite and really tackling social social issues. So, um, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, just a band that I I've, I've, I've would call my favorite band and I haven't been able to find one. I mean, Drive Like Jehu is up there. But um, I don't know. I think I, if I had to choose who who I could see, you know, reunited, I, I suppose I definitely always go with Fugazi. That's the dream, man. That is the dream. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did want to ask you one more thing before we got into talking about the song. Is I checked, I was looking at the Jazz June Facebook page, and I don't know if this was you, but somebody posted that they saw the Fugazi opera. It's all true. Was was that you? Yes. Yeah, that, I did. Because we we had that guy who who made that uh, on the podcast. Uh, he talked oh, about cool. blueprints. Um, what did you think about that? Pretty crazy, right? Yeah, it was definitely ab- more abstract than I imagined it to be. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> when, but I really, but I could definitely. I mean, you'd have to be a super super Fugazi fan to under to pick up the subtle hints. You know what I mean? Because some of it was. Just, yeah, well, obviously it's like the parts of their live shows where they're talking um, and you'd have to have listened to that whole sort of like um, two-hour YouTube video of just the, the speaking parts of the, the Fugazi show to really understand the context. But um, no, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it was uh, it's definitely way out there and pretty crazy, but uh, I enjoyed it um, and I thought it was really well done. Um and uh, yeah, I never actually, I guess they have a recording of it too, but I never, I don't know if I ever actually listened to it. I just saw it that one time live and thought, whoa, that was definitely an experience to behold. Yeah, and certainly something that could only be made by a very Fugazi obsessed person. Um, so yeah, exactly, any any listeners yeah. who haven't listened to the Blueprints episode, uh, that's where we have uh, Travis Just, so shout out to him. Well, today we're talking about Instrument from In on the Kill Taker. And before we started recording, we talked about, you know, we had both read Joe Gross's book, 33 and a Third, where there are some uh, revealing things said about the song. And I, I always like try to ride sort of a line between giving some tidbits and uh, holding some things back so people actually <laughs> go out and buy the book because uh, it's it's a great book that every Fugazi fan yeah. should own. But I guess, yeah, there are a few quotes that I wanted to pull out. So Ian says in that book, there's a line from a Mississippi Fred McDowell album, quote, some people don't ever feel nothing until they lose somebody in their family. Instrument is about trying to feel things before that happens. Um, another quote, how do you measure loss? The loss of other people's lives is tiny. Loss of one's own life is exaggerated. Um, and here sort of in the book, Joe Gross makes the case that this is basically the sequel to the song Repeater, but from a slightly different perspective, um, particularly about... Uh, white people who kind of observe black people dying almost like at a distance at some kind of remove and it doesn't really mean that much to them until the possibility of their own deaths becomes real another quote from ian as far as the music goes he says i brought the music as a bass riff and we started building guitar layers but that's the last song i can remember that i really came in like here's a song here's a track End quote. Um, as opposed to Fugazi's more usual writing style of just like purely collaborating uh, and sort of building up songs uh, together. And there are also a few quotes courtesy of 
perennial friend of the show, Unter Hobbits, who's like the resident Fugazi live show expert. And uh, he's he noted uh, a few interesting places. Uh, for example, a show in Los Angeles in January of 1992. The song was introduced as Lost Could Way. I guess the working title of the song was Lost Could Way. In Washington, D.C. in uh, in March of that year, March of 92, it was introduced as a song about, quote, chickens coming home to roost. And in Washington, D.C., the month after that, April 92, uh, it was introduced as, quote, a song about what exactly the consequences could possibly be and how much they weigh when they affect you and not them, end quote, which is like referring to the numerous young men shooting each other every day in Washington, D.C. So thanks, Unter, for pointing those out. That's what I have by way of introducing the song and, and like what we can say is coming from authoritative sources. But yeah, what do you think, uh, Andrew, for the first stab at this song? What what do you think we should talk about here? Well, I, you know, well, obviously extremely topical considering like what the hell just happened in D.C., um, couple days ago yes yeah for listeners we're recording this episode on january 10th so this is very fresh for us the uh the the riot slash attempted coup craziness that happened at the capitol yeah and again um obviously those sort of like barbaric people um would have been the same people down in charlottesville to attack black lives matter protests and i mean this was like you know you know, obviously their own day, they weren't uh, crashing in on someone else's um, affair this time. But, um, you know, that yeah, just sitting back and observing black lives being disposable, um, obviously disgusting fact um, that ex- still exists today, unfortunately. Um, but, um, you know, starting from kind of like reading through this, the explanation, three, 33 and a third, I know he, he talks about how, you know, he would, he had heard some of the, um, some of his friends talking about, oh, I heard a 44 last night and a 45 and kind of like thinking it's cool to live um, in a, you know, a, a, a black neighborhood or, um, you know, around people who are, are, you know, getting shot and things like that and thinking it's cool, which obviously is really shit. I mean, I can't say that I haven't seen that or noticed it before. So I kind of feel like I know what he means when he's talking about that, because I remember, you know, people living down, uh, moving into Brooklyn and, and, you know, funnily enough, it's like, it is, it's just the, the, the gentrification of a neighborhood, isn't it? You know, the punks move in, the art artists move in, um, and then eventually the whole place gets gentrified. Um, but yeah, kind of like going in and bragging like, oh, I live in the ghetto and that's so cool when people are like dying and fighting for their lives is, uh, is a pretty shit uh, <laughs> pr- uh, perspective to have. Um, you right. know, and then I guess he's... I think, and then I, I, knew I he- guess I want to say like that relevant line from the song, we've been dragged through the fire, we bragged about that fire, but suddenly we're tired. Um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like there's, you have cred if you've lived in a tough neighborhood, right? But looking at it from a different way, it's shitty to brag about that. Well, and also I've had experience, I've never actually lived um, in a neighborhood um, of that description, but um, I've had two really horrible experiences um, in neighborhoods where, you know, where I was walking, well, one of them was in Dayton, Ohio, where these dudes just came by and they were like, stopped us. They asked us if we knew this guy and they were like, oh, he got beat up last night, didn't he? Those guys are a bunch of assholes. And I, and I was with 
locals, I didn't live in Dayton, but I was with some locals, again, who lived in a punk house. And the guys were like, oh, no, uh, no, that guy, whatever, I don't I don't know. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, they just started punching us. And because uh, they're basically, they had beaten up one of their friends the night before, and they were coming back to beat them up. And they wanted us to talk shit on the, it was just this weird situation. And we just got punched and chased and stuff like that and then another time in arlington virginia we were playing at this place called twisters and we walked back from the venue and these two guys pulled a gun on us basically nothing happened but um but like yeah you know once you're kind of involved in a situation like that you immediately realize how it's not cool to live you know in in the edgy neighborhood um and again you know the people who are out there doing these things, um, they're not to be looked up to or, 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 or it's not to be bragged about. So, um, yeah, I kind of resonate with a lot of those themes that he's talking about because I definitely saw it. And again, you know, just like people having punk houses and rougher neighborhoods and, and thinking it was cool. Um, pretty lame. But um, but yeah, I mean, just, you know, this whole perspective of watching, seeing Black Lives is Disposable um, you would have just thought by this, but well, you thought, would have thought by the point he wrote the song that that would have uh, not been the case. But you know, it's even the case today. Which um, I don't know what we're going to do about that. But um, obviously, disgusting part of life that um, needs sorting out. I mean, luckily there's a new administration in, and hopefully Trump is in his last days. But uh, who knows if I don't think he's going to disappear, is he? I wouldn't think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's to look at it from the perspective of what we've just seen happen. I mean, I, I guess you could draw like a, a complex um, analogy about like, well, now there, there are people who have been making this whole country into a rough neighborhood <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah. some of them just got a taste of the reality of the consequences of that. So yeah, you could, you could blow this song up and apply it to just the entire national situation suppose that's something somebody could write a whole essay about really yeah i mean it's just mind-blowing i mean i obviously uh very much like keep up with the news i don't live there anymore but um watching it from afar it's just been so disheartening to think see the things that have happened because it was so positive to see people siding with black lives matter um as not, you know, at first it was like, oh, it's a terrorist organization, you know, this stupid shit. And then Blue Lives Matter came out, fucking ridiculous. But it seemed like, okay, there's this public, you know, um, this is public recognition finally that there is there is racism. What, what do you know? Like, you know, admitting it um, uh, and standing by, you know, um, people who are, are, are trying to protest for their own rights and fight for their own lives, you know, I mean, um, and then when it just turned the other way with Trump, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, you just think, Jesus, what a, what a horrible thing that to happen to such a positive movement. Um, and I don't know if, have you ever, have you listened to that podcast resistance? No. Um, it's a really great podcast um, where they they kind of talk to a lot of the different um, people who were involved, you know, early on in the Black Lives Matter protests, um, and talk through their stories um, and see the things that happened to them. You know, some of the some of the younger kids who were um, involved in setting up the protests, all of a sudden they would have like one day they would show up, um, they would be at home and like 50 cops would be just be surrounding their house, um, you know, to try to intimidate them from just starting 
you know, these peaceful protests. And it's like, you know, it's not just one cop. It's like the entire, um, you know, police department in that neighborhood is all of a sudden showing up. They're just trying to intimidate them from starting peaceful protests to... To, to fight against, you know, their, to fight for their human rights. It's just like so dark and twisted. Um, so I don't know. I mean, again, to try to put a positive light on it, at least Trump is gone for now <laughs> and he's not making the laws anymore. But uh, yeah. there was still I, a long I way to go. I hesitate to even say anything like that. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. uh, that, that motherfucker, he's, we haven't heard the last of him. <laughs> No, I mean, I've been like endlessly listening to lots of different analyses of why he did what he did in the last couple of days. And they're all just so bleak and dark. And um, and it just shows you the depths of his insanity. Um, but, you know, he's and he's not the only one. He's just the, the leader. There's just so many other people who have the same thoughts. And then, um, you know, and, and other politicians who are still in power. Um and who still, you know, what, there were six of them who still stood by him after that. So, whew, yeah. it's, not, uh, it's, not a good, it's not a good thing, let's say that. Yeah, I guess um, when it comes to looking at that through the lens of, of the song Instrument, um, I was feeling very dense earlier because maybe I had never sat down and thought about the lyrics to this song, especially like the intro. That one is predetermined, that one it finds another. This one comes in one window, sliding out the other. And I think I never really knew what that was about. Um, but thinking about about it for just a minute, I was like, oh, it's about bullets, right? Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, it just hit me and I was like, oh, clearly he's talking about... It's sort of like a dark, um, you know, this little piggy <laughs> sort of rhyme. Um, yeah. But yeah, like this bullet is, you know, is uh, fired at somebody and, and hits him, like hits the person it was intended this bullet accidentally hits somebody else. This one is like a stray bullet that, you know, goes into somebody's window and out the other side, talking about how violence doesn't necessarily uh, always even hit the person that it's targeted at. So, um, yeah, these the sort of insane people let loose by this administration, they're like stray bullets. And, like, there's no, at a certain point, there's no sort of controlling what they do. Um, as yeah, no, you're you're totally right. As another um, uh, aspect of this tortured analogy, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. There's two parts to that that uh, I, I've been thinking about because um, you know, there's like you said, the side of um, you know, he's just he's 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 just the sort of ringleader, isn't he now? So he's he's built up these lies for people who are just so susceptible to his type of lie, you know, the ones that. Um, point out conspiracies against um, his party or him and, and his believers. And, you know, because they even saw after the election that um, there were so many photoshopped pictures of people, you know, whatever, carrying ballots out or whatever it was. It was so obviously photoshopped, but it didn't matter because the people who wanted to believe that believed it. Um, so just feeding them the lies to get them more angry and to give them a purpose to go out and like storm Capitol Hill. It's just, it's just, it's just mind blowing. You know, when you think about it, um, you, you know, it's like 
thinking back in like my history classes when it's like, oh, you know, down in like 1814, all the all the farmers got together and took over, you know, the local politicians. It just seems like some sort of folklore thing that couldn't happen, uh, couldn't possibly happen with like the infrastructure of our society and security and everything. It's like, um, you know, it just shows what people are capable of when they're just full of rage and hate and lies. Um, and the other side of it is just this kind of like, again, the violence, um, the violence aspect of it. And I'm not getting into like, oh, video games and that whole kind of side side of the thing. But obviously, there's a lot of violence that kids grow up looking at. And, you know, and, and of course, a lot of people see it in their own neighborhoods. And sometimes they have to protect themselves. And sometimes they have to, um, you know, carry weapons just because that's part of their everyday life, which isn't a great thing. Um, uh, but, um, at any rate, uh, you know, this idea, I think, again, leading back to Trump of like this anti-hero and it's like, well, I'm just out to get mine and I'm going to, by any means necessary, you know, this sort of like very self-centered approach of like, well, violence is okay because it's a means to an end to get me what I need. And I think that has definitely always existed, but it's really definitely a thing that we're seeing um, especially with these Trump people, it's just like whatever, by any means necessary to get what they want. Um, and f- facts don't even matter. Uh, it's just, you know, make it up and then you've got a battle cry to go out and do whatever you need to do and justify it. It's just, it's just sickening, but it's, it's funny how, um, I, I think this is like subconsciously an impetus for me to start this podcast is because it, it just demonstrated to me how I I'm always thinking about Fugazi songs as they relate to current events. Like they are these, uh, there are these little nuggets of wisdom that are applicable to so many situations, and you just find yourself thinking about them when things get crazy or um, or yeah, even just yeah. interesting. And and yeah, this is one of them. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's kind of like goes back to what I was saying about just you know being like um, just being at a point when I. F- found Fagazi um, and learning about the themes and, um, you know, the things that they were singing about and reading the lyrics and writing to them and everything else, just knowing it was just like, it always just seems so right on. You know, I was trying to find myself and figure out like where I fit in with the world and what my opinions really were. And, you know, like my own true opinions, not my parents or my friends, trying to find my own identity. And, it was always you, you, you know. You've always kind of got this little Ian McKay, uh, McKay on your shoulder, don't you? Where it's just like, hmm, what would, what yeah. would he think about this situation? You know, um, of course, I know from the interviews I listened to him, he would just think that's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. But it's like a lot of like the things that they talk about really can just guide you on this like righteous path. You know what I mean? They just got it so right on. Um, you know, which goes everything back to the ticket prices and not wanting to rip people off and not wanting to make money, you know, just really being about the art and the expression. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, it's just guidelines to live, uh, to live by, you know, be on a pretty good path. I wanted to talk about like the, the title to this song too. And it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting right off the bat as a title to a song, because if you, if you're presented with a song by a musician called instruments, you probably have a certain expectation that it'll be about a musical instrument, right? Yeah. And, and this, yeah. the song <laughs> yeah. is not about that at all. Um, and so, so that in itself, right? Like before the song even starts, 
is one cool thing about it. Um, and it's it's a pretty cool little concept. It's almost like it almost satirizes the term like immeasurable grief. I mean, satire is not the right word for the song with like with this tenor to it. Um, but the way that it examines the concept of loss uh, as if it could actually be measurable with some sort of instrument is mm-hmm. like it's it's weird to think about that because it's a term that I feel like I've heard a lot in life is like, you know, we're if somebody talks about losing a loved one. It's like, you know, we feel immeasurable grief at the passing of so and so. It's like, well, when have you felt measurable grief? When is grief yeah. ever? <laughs> yeah. A measurable thing and like if, I mean yeah. I'm not going to be pedantic and say that to somebody who's grieving but um, no, it's it, it, like this is a song that points out something that I guess I had never really thought about before um, in, in that way um, something it brought to mind too as I was thinking about it is uh, I'm, I'm sure you and probably most of our listeners have seen the film Fight Club but the uh, yeah. like the main character in that uh, there's this scene where he talks about his job, which is that he's a recall coordinator for like a a, a major car company, and it's like mm-hmm. if if there's a defective part of a car that like that causes um that causes a fatal crash, it's like well how do we decide whether or not to recall the car? And it's like well you just do this little calculation uh, if it uh, if the um, if the cost of all the lawsuits that we're going to face because of this is less than the cost of what it would be to recall, then we don't do the recall. Um, so it's yeah, like literally yeah. sort of putting value on human life in a way. Um, so I, uh, I couldn't help thinking about that as I examined this little um, concept in my mind. Yeah. And, you know, I see this, I saw that really poignantly when uh you know covid hit london um and the uk you know run by a tory government who are very you know business focused as opposed to labor who is definitely more people focused um and they really waited to the last minute and i I remember hearing you know to to shut the country down even like ireland um places in europe were shutting down much sooner and i heard this story um from a guy i think it's the blind boy um podcast where he talked about he had a gig in um and he's from ireland he had a gig in london and obviously everything was really getting crazy over here with the the numbers of cases jumping every day i remember it was like one day was two the next day was four the next day was eight then it was a hundred you know it was obvious what was happening um but he said that he had a gig in london um and he was just like oh well that's definitely going to be canceled so like all his gigs in Ireland were canceled. Uh, he was like a he's like a comedian, spoken word guy. So um, you know, sold out show, and he's just like waiting for the last minute for the you know the the country to shut down. Or and it was like no no, it's it's not being shut down. And obviously, he was didn't want that many people to gather in a place because he knew what that was going to be. But um, basically, he then shut the um, he shut the show down. Um, on his own. But then because it hadn't been declared a national emergency yet, he was then, he wasn't covered by any insurance. So he had to pay like thousands and thousands of pounds because he, he canceled the show. And it was, and it was like, you know, the Tory government was waiting and watching to see like how many of their supporters would be financially affected if they had shut the country down 
you know what I mean? Because then they would have to pay insurance claims. And it was just like, oh, my God, there's definitely a calculation or someone's job is to make that calculation of like virus effect versus insurance claim payments to major donors. And, in you know, this whole side of, you know, COVID, which is just so financially backed and or driven, which is just absolutely insane. So, again, um, you know, it's, it's just obviously, like you said, you know, we're talking about the cost of human life here. And obviously, it um, in so many cases, it's, uh, you know, money is more important. That's, yeah, I, for some reason, I never thought of that. But that's, uh, that's such a trenchant observation. Like, yes, that is something that has been so maddening about this whole the debate over what our response should be to COVID is like, you've got so many people being like, well, what about the economy, though? Think of the economy. We bring the, yeah, we gotta. Yeah, like, I know. Hundreds of thousands of uh, of your uh, of your fellow Americans are dying here, but. Um, and then you hear people go like, I mean, they don't say it, like, intentionally, but they're like, yeah, but a lot of the people were gonna die anyway, and yeah. it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. What? Seriously? Which, I mean, yeah. I mean, so that that's another angle you could like take from this song is like this song is written about you know. Um, white people not really feeling the value of black lives, but it's also like young people not really feeling the value of older people's lives. I think that's a huge part of this. It's like, no, th- yeah, these are yeah. these are living people. Like, uh, like maybe they're going to die sooner than you anyway. But it's not like they're it's not like they're on death's door, man. Uh, it's well, like, this is it, and 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 you know, it's the value. You know, your it becomes a very personal interpretation of a very um public thing it's like well if i lose my job i can't pay my mortgage which means my kids will have nowhere to live so i need my company to stay open even if that means those old and vulnerable people are going to die i have to make that choice even though no one has the choice to do any of this stuff it's not like we're making the decisions but like these conversations actually happen and to draw another parallel that's probably not foremost on our minds because there's no sort of like major war action happening at the moment, but I think that was always a big concern of Fugazi and, and Ian Mackay in particular. Uh, I think you could really uh, draw a parallel between this song and war and uh, people's um, feelings about and, and rhetoric about going to war when it's not them who is actually sort of in the line of fire. Um, so I, I don't have a lot to say about that. I, I just think it's a thing that's floating out there, uh, when you listen to the song and you consider the value of, of, uh, other people's lives. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, it's obviously, sci- you know, I, I was thinking about this actually in the car today, um, cause I was listening to some podcasts about, uh, Capitol Hill mob and it was like, people are so willing to get behind an ideology that they will, go off and hurt other people because they're standing the way of like what I don't even really know what they want do they want just do they want to go back to segregation time I mean I probably could read into it and find out what exactly they want but it's like what are they trying to accomplish specifically they're just behind this ideology that they've been cheated um and 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 that's just so strange that some someone could just stand behind something 
so vehemently that they would fight for it. I mean, I can obviously see defending yourself if you're if you're going to have to use violence, defending yourself. But to go out and actively seek violence against someone because they're standing in front of some sort of political ideology that you share, and you're not being oppressed. It's not like you're being oppressed and they're your oppressor. It's just it is mind-boggling. So um, I don't know. But um, I wanted to ask you a question, and you can you can take this out if you don't think it's relevant. But like. In doing this podcast, um, is there like a theme that you have found or some themes through the interviews about like, I mean, like Fugazi's relevance on, is it like, are you always finding people relating themes from Fugazi songs and their ideas to, to today? Or do you, or is it, the, you know, what do you, what do you so like, is there any sort of like strain you're seeing across all the people that you're interviewing? Because I would assume everyone you're interviewing is like a major Fugazi fan. Yeah, I, I think there are so many commonalities. I like I I can't bring to mind who exactly it was, but I feel like I just recently talked to somebody who had a very similar story to yours about like, you know, showing up and and not being able to get into the show for whatever reason, and uh, might have been actually Brendan himself who like uh, brought them in. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. like even down to those little details, I think a lot of people have common experiences about Fugazi. But yeah, the songs too. Like we, I just released episode about uh give me the cure with mark anderson which is about aids of course but you know we had a lot of parallels to talk about with covid and that um so yeah i I think the music even when it's written about it a specific issue more or less um turns out to be sort of timeless for for fans of the band well yeah and that was the other thing too about this song is that again listening to it it's like you know even even um with with this many years in between when that song was recorded, it's like, I don't feel like I know any guitarist who can make their guitar sound like that. You know, obviously there are people who do amazing thing with guitars and guitar sounds, but because um, Ian just did like a guitar and an amp, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I guess part of it is there are not a lot of people who plug into a Marshall half stack and turn it like all the way up. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not something you see every day, especially I think uh, that's, that's the case more and more as venues have gotten, you know, better sound systems and, and whatever, like you just, nobody's going to let you do that. But I think yeah. it's an important part of that sound. Um, you know, of course, along with uh, Ian just has this great technique. He's just like one of the great rhythm guitarists. Which is so funny because I don't think I really appreciated that until sort of like really recently because I always just saw him as the singer. You know, obviously I saw him on guitar, but like, you know, uh, reading in 33 and a third and just, I don't know, it just didn't occur to me that he was like actually writing guitar riffs. I don't know why. I know that seems ridiculous, but he was just, he's always like the front man to me, you know, yeah. um, the singer um, and the lyricist. Like those are the things I guess that I sort of like m more sort of like honed in on. But yeah, just, you know, the fact that like, they're obviously like seemingly simple songs. You know, if you like looked at the tab, Ta the guitar tabs, you know, they would be pretty simple. Um, but then, like, just the bass lines they weave in, the noises they make, and obviously Brendan Canty, it's like taking, you know, it's like that restraint thing, isn't it? Like, once you limit yourself to only a guitar and an amp, you're cutting out a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, options, but you're really making that thing sound the best that it can. It's, um, it's just a really cool thing to think about with art and music. I mean, I know 
a million people have said that before, especially with like recording, you know, a lot of recording engineers say like, oh yeah, I could have 157 tracks on this song, but like, let's get 12 that sound good and then build from there and like use a bit of restraint. And those are, I think, you know, um, some of the best, the best type of songs to me, it's like really simple, but there's just something different about it. Um, well, now and- speaking of that, like in this song, I, one of the things I definitely wanted to bring up is Ian's vocal, which is double tracked. Yeah. Um, and I, I, there may be other Fugazi songs where he's like, he, he has his vocals double tracked, but this is like an extreme example. Like it's not, it's not like. It sounds like it's not closely double tracked like an Elliot Smith or a John Lennon thing, but it's it's a little maybe looser somehow. Somehow it's more of an effect in this. It's so mm-hmm. I can't think of another Fugazi song with that kind of vocal treatment. Um, it's and it's like I I wonder I wonder why. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, an interesting choice. Maybe because so many of the lyrics like I. This is probably not why, but it is interesting that so many of the lyrics say we, like we need an instrument, uh, mm-hmm. we need no yeah. value, and like his voice is more than one voice singing, so like there's an idea. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point, um, and a really cool effect that if they did, you know, I don't know if that was exactly what they did, but obviously it would be a really cool um sort of style to take with it that um, shows you kind of like the granularity of the stuff that they were doing. Um, you know, it's just like, not just him because I, yeah, I was going to say like, it just seems like such a roar when he's screaming. Yeah. Um, and like, I didn't even notice the double track thing, but now that you say, yeah, there definitely is a double track thing. And, but was this the album that um, I, I know that this was an album that was like panned by a lot of a lot of um, magazines, and I guess I attribute that to they were like coming. Well, it came out at a time where alternative music was being, you know, so so widely sort of like um, publicized and listened to and talked and written about in the mainstream, and they thought that this was just like a bit what too dry, and it was just a bit simple and things i i, I think I you're probably thinking of steady diet of nothing that was okay. more received that way but it's interesting you say that because i like i've always thought that instrument has a steady diet feel to it like it feels yeah, like a yeah. song that belongs on that album for some reason i'm not exactly sure why i've just always felt that way um something about the i don't know something about the structure or the sound of the song um yeah 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 but no i i I think i think this album was like better received critically for sure okay yeah i must be getting those two mixed up um but yeah no and and you know again having worked it did that one album in her ear um it just is is a totally unique studio that all the it's i don't know if they did it on purpose it was just like serendipity where they're like put this microphone with this amp and this thing and it just sounds like no other place on the planet but you know I, that's kind of how I felt when we were there it was just like I can't get a sound like this anywhere else um, and uh, yeah so having you know we only had about six days there they they would have had a lot more time to work on things and just get like um, such great tones and obviously even just you know from their own equipment and everything else with Don behind the Don behind the uh the knobs so um yeah, yeah it seems like especially in the stuff. later years they had a lot of time to just try different stuff um because they started doing real interesting things um 
But in this, on this song, I was going to say, not only Ian's voice, I also feel like the bass is double-tracked. Like, I am i can't be sure, like, because it, it sounds so um, extra extra weighty or something it sounds i know what you mean yeah so muddy and and yeah it's like sludgy and scrapey or something like that yeah and it's definitely not a pedal no it's and that like the effect of that is amplified because of course after the little intro ian stops playing guitar so it's just basically his voice and bass uh and drums and like I, it seems like his voice and bass are both double tracked, so it's like this very heavy and weird sounding thing. And I, I guess um, Guy is playing a little guitar melody over that um, before before yeah. Ian comes back in with the chords. Well, this is it, and like you know, it's like that perfect point about like the things that they did with dynamics. I think that was always what I found so striking at their live shows just the dynamics of like the start and stop and low and it's just just like then it was exploding you just never really you just always caught you off guard because you just never really knew what was going to happen like if you didn't know every single song i mean um you could have just been you're just being battered about um by loud and low and and you know driving and fast and slow it's just like i don't know yeah. i mean there is just something magical about that yeah it's for dudes that's true for this song it's like it's not the most complex song but you know for example there's the intro um that one is predetermined etc it's just sort of simple chords but then when that comes back in like they sort of add a musical element on top of that there's this guitar that's like and it's like yeah yeah it's just sort of like stacked up over it a little so they make it a little more interesting every time and yeah and it builds up until the end is like uh, there's like this sort of altogether heavy riff that happens at the end um, to to great effect, I think. Um, sounding real, yeah. real, real big at the end there. I did want to point out that uh, in live versions of this, um, you know, I just talked to uh, or I just released the episode talking to Nick Pelichotto, who, you know, was talking about the effects that he would put on uh, the vocals and the drums in a lot of songs. This is one of those songs where, like, if you l- if you listen to a live version, often they'll like at the end when I- when Ian is singing "Way Lost Could Way," like there's a delay on that, so there's like this sort of echo effect that happens, and it gets it's like adds to the sort of chaos of the end there. Um, so yes, that's a good thing to uh, to listen to for people who are uh, uh, geeked out about the live versions. Oh, what? So they would do that live as well? Yeah. Yeah, just like whoever uh, it was, Nick and the per- the sound guy before him, Joey, and I guess they for a while they maybe traded off a little on tours, but um, yeah, they had like just rack mount effects, and they would just like uh, put on some reverb or echo or whatever at certain points. And have you you've done you've done episodes with them? Yeah, the one I released uh, on Glue Man is uh, is with Nick Pelichotto. Okay, I wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, I haven't listened to all. I've listened to loads of them. I haven't, but I definitely, yeah, because I, I, I would love to hear their yeah, no, that's thoughts a, if, on uh, the that's live like sound. the one that I would recommend to like a Fugazi geek who's into that stuff because I had never really heard that discussed before, the, like the live effects that were happening. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, it's pretty cool, amazing. Definitely gonna go listen to that immediately. Um, so there a lot of people had comments on uh the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page. Uh, I just wanted to 
rattle off some of those real quick just so I could uh, give my listeners a little bit of a voice there. Uh, John Rash says about Instrument, one of my favorite songs from my favorite Fugazi album, a song about recognizing consequences of division. Could be applied to war, social, or economic divisions. Uh, language in the lyrics sets up a us-versus-them dynamic that is being questioned by the weight of loss. Um, yes, I uh, exactly what I was thinking about war, for sure. Um, Alan Newman says, Long Distance Runner, Part 1, which is interesting. I, I didn't take time to really think about that and consider it, so I'll have to chew on that and uh, <laughs> uh, examine, yeah. uh, examine parallels there. Brian X Officio says, it's for me sort of the hub around which the band's entire aesthetic revolves, which is to say one of their most important songs. Jason Dick says, it's fucking great, a very powerful song, five out of five. Uh, Dustin Henry Courier says, this song is a great showcase of Ian's songwriting. It exhibits his incredible tunefulness in the main vocal melodies and leads us through a whole spectrum of how he uses his voice. Um, yeah, just to, to butt in there, like the... the um, <laughs> The, the way that Ian delivers the word way in this sort of like almost spooky ghost voice like way is like it's so, yeah, it's I so mean, crazy that's, and interesting I, I keep, right th- <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah and then he's just like barking afterwards it's just such a really cool part of the dynamic of the song considering he starts with you know we need an instrument you yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. Gonna picture picture him doing that little sort of hip dance that him and Guy used to do together um, to just like that like furious roar it's just really what I loved <laughs> about that band especially live um but uh, yeah, and back to Dustin, he says it's lyrically a great example of him presenting a reality without explicitly telling the listener how to feel about it, but through asking questions. I think it effectively brings us to a place of considering whose lives we give value and why. Timeless shit. Cole Pepper says one of my absolute favorites, those last two songs on Killtaker end it so well. And Colin Mack says used to think it was uh, just a filler before I got to Last Chance, but recently it's become one of my favorites overall. I loved the dragged through the fire, bragged about that fire line. Uh, oh, and finally, Seldom Careful says, I demand at least some discussion of which song is better between this one and the Lungfish song of the same name. I think it's very close. You familiar with the Lungfish song instrument, uh, Andrew? No, I'm definitely familiar with Lungfish, but I don't know. I have to go back and listen to it. I haven't listened to them in several years, though, to be fair. I mean, I love them, but it's just one of those ones where I just haven't listened to well. So I'll definitely go listen to it. If you want, we could take a super quick break right now and listen to it and, and comment on it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Should I um, press stop on my recording or are you going to keep this rolling? I'll just keep it rolling and, and edit it out. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a listen to it right now. It's not a typical sort of uh, lungfish. It's not like the, the, you know, the sort of like um, stereotypical lungfish sound, is it, with this song? But yeah, yeah, it is. So there is a lot of parallels, like sonically, you can draw with the Fugazi uh, instrument. Just the screaming, the loud guitar, like. Um, it does have those very Fugazi sort of octave chords going on. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy because even a lot of that sort of like you could you could compare a lot of the themes here just from the the um, the lyrics as well. Yeah, to succeed or fail, um, hmm. the outcome of the action. Yeah, I it's almost for me um, the lyrics are almost more of a parallel with furniture to me than than with the yeah. Gazi song instrument. Yeah, musically it's almost more accessible but less complex than Fugazi's instrument. Yes, definitely. Um, 
They were also really amazing live band. Um, I had a friend who owned a tattoo shop um, in Point Pleasant uh, who used to play with Lungfish all the time. I can't remember the name of his band, but it was like a Jersey Shore band. And he said that the guitarist of that band was like the most incredible guitarist ever. Like he could just play like Jimi Hendrix solos. Like he would just go up for sound check and play like a Jimi Hendrix solo. Um <laughs> Um, you know, and you just like an insane genius kind of guitar player. Um, but you know, obviously with this song, it's just like a very simple sort of like couple chords driving tune, um, which just really works really well. Well, would you like to, uh, address our listeners demand to, uh, talk about which song is better, uh, the longfish one or the Fugazi one, but roll that into ratings. where I ask my listener to, uh, if they could, rate the song instrument from a scale of one star to five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog. Um, what do you think about this as a Fugazi song, and what do you think as compared to the Longfish song? Oh, man. <laughs> That's such a hard thing. Um, I'm always going to have to side with Fugazi, and, you know, just as a matter of course, they're, you know, I do love Longfish, but I, w- I would say I prefer... Um, Fugazi's instrument. Um, I have a short little story here, though. I did almost get a tattoo from Daniel Higgs once. I was really excited because he was working at my friend's tattoo shop. And uh, I came up with like this really um, sort of uh, abstract horse picture that I thought he would really like, you know. And um, he was like, uh, ah, I, I can't do that. I don't, I, I, no, I, I can't do that. And I just like broke my heart because <laughs> I had like purposely picked this tattoo that I thought he really like and then he just is like no I'm not going to do it why don't you get why don't you pick something off the wall and I was like no I'm not going to get a tattoo that I pick off the wall but anyway that's a total side story but um <laughs> any rate I, I wish I would have now no I have a few tattoos now knowing Daniel Higgs I wish I would have just gotten anything he told me to get but uh at any rate no um so I, I'm gonna go with the Fugazi song um just because simply there is a bit more to it but more dynamic um you know, I really studied the lyrics for this one, so I feel like for the Fugazi one, so I knew it more intimately. This one, I haven't listened to a long time. Um, but also, as far as rating it, I'm going to go with a four. I mean, and the only, you know, it's so hard to rate any of their songs or say what's my favorite album or what's my favorite song. I feel like Bed for the Scraping is my favorite song. If I, There was some, like, interview I did a while ago where someone made me pick one, and I picked that one, so I'm just going to stick with that. So that's the five for me, and then everything else is a four, basically. So, um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Yeah, I... I think I'm going to say four. Also, um, I was right. yeah, I was considering three and a half, but uh, no, I'll I'll go with four. It's like, uh, yeah, I I think I I first found the the beginning of this song a little bit of a slog. Like I wasn't sure about like the vocal melody and the double tracked thing. It it was a little a little weird, but I mean, I think it's one of those songs that is a starts out kind of a slow burn and then uh, picks up speed and becomes a real sort of like classic Fugazi barn burner by the end, um, especially uh, in live outings. So yeah, I, I think between that and the um, the the very interesting lyrics, uh, I'll go with a f- uh, four star song. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I was. 
my favorite song from In on the Kill Taker has always been Great Cop. So, um, but this one is definitely the second, I think. I mean, probably because I've had, you know, I've listened to it so many times in the lead up to, uh, to this podcast just to prepare myself. But um, yeah, it's really just the, you know, really it, it, it gets better after every listen. So yeah, listeners yeah. out there, if you never paid attention to it, you know, <laughs> sit back with a nice brandy and uh, put on some headphones and, you know, really get into it. <laughs> brandy and instruments. That's, uh, that's a great <laughs> yeah. combo. Well, um, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Green tea, green tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're if you're more of an Ian Mackay, green tea yeah. is the way to go. Well, why don't we talk about plugs? Uh, Andrew, I know you've got a new project. Is that record released yet? Yeah, so we're, I've got this band now um, called Post Skeleton with a hyphen. Um, and uh, we're on Bandcamp and SoundCloud and we've got an Instagram account. Um, we basically were a band for about two years and then um, finally, like, I don't know, played our first two gigs right before coronavirus happens so um yeah two years together two gigs and then completely stopped but at one point um, uh, during that time we um recorded a track and that's actually the only thing that's available um we have loads of other songs but we just don't have any cash to uh to get them produced so basically we recorded them in our rehearsal space and we sent them off to uh it's awesome guy bob cooper and he does his magic on him but we just don't have any cash right now to do it so we're record li- uh, sorry recordless uh labelless, and um sort of um songless except for that one but uh, you know hopefully once things get back to normal we can start getting out there putting out more records and uh, or yeah putting out more songs and stuff so um the other thing i'm working on a um a sort of solo-ish project. I always start things as a solo project, and then I go, oh, man, I, I want to play these songs with other people. But it's more of like a um, sort of um, mellower kind of thing, um, acoustic guitar, bass, but then I add lots of other instruments. It's called Dog Beach. Um, but that nothing from that has been released to the public. I'm still working on it. Um, There's a funny story, name, story behind the name Dog Beach, but... Um, I don't know if you have time for that. Um, sure. Why not? Oh, right. So anyway, <laughs> when I was in the Jazz June, we first um, played in California. So we drove overnight from Arizona, I think. And uh, we, yeah, one of those ones where we left the night, you know, left from the gig, drove all the way through the night and got to San Diego. Um and uh, it was the first time any of we were like 19, the first time any of us had been to the West Coast. So we were just so excited, you know, especially to get to the beach. So we drove straight to the beach and we parked the van and we just literally all ran to the beach. We were running down and we're like, it was this really, really long beach. And we were like yelling to each other. You know, there's probably like six of us, you know, the band plus a roadie and a friend. And we're just like, well, like, why are there so many dogs on this beach like there's dogs every, there's dogs everywhere and like this really typical stereotypical and you know bear in mind this is the first person in california we talked to and we had this whole image our whole life of what california is like and this like really buff dude um typical california guy is just like it's dog beach bro get a grip <laughs> And apparently this is the, you know, it was the beach for dogs. So obviously there's dogs everywhere, but we had no idea. But um, yeah. So anyway, that's how the, that, that whole, uh, you know, I have these stupid things where like 
that story will spawn a musical project, you know, like that one thing. So that's kind of, um, that'll be next for it. And that's more realistic to release because I don't have to record like drums. So at any rate, uh, one day if you, you'll Google Dog Beach and maybe find a song or two. But yeah, post skeletons out there. I'm also in another band called Vervan, Vervan Varvan. Um, again, are we online? We're somewhere online. SoundCloud. We've got a record label now um, called Wild Wax. Some guys from Germany um, and Girlsville Records put out uh, a t- couple tapes from us. But it was a band that we, I was in uh, a couple of years ago, um, right before my first daughter was born. We played lots and played a bunch of shows in London and recorded lots of um, lots of tunes. And then we basically kind of broke up because I had a daughter. And then, I don't know, a couple of years later, Girlsville, um, Courtney, who's just a really awesome person, got in touch. It was like, I love this band. Uh, and she put out a cassette. And then her and some guys over in um, Germany are putting out the um, vinyl for it. <clears throat> and um, we're going to, well, we were supposed to play a festival over there this summer obviously that got postponed to next summer so hopefully that happens so yeah lots of different stuff it's all through so through my soundcloud page you can hear like snippets so i'll send you a link to that yeah any and all links um i'll put those in the show notes for listeners to check out that would be awesome um and i i do recommend uh titling the first album by dog beach get a grip yes Um, definitely (laughs) (laughs) well awesome it's been a pleasure to talk with you andrew Lowe. yeah you Um, too man So my plugs as usual, you know, you can tell a friend about the show. That would be awesome. You can reach me about Fugazi A to Z at gmail.com and join the Facebook page that I uh, previously spoke about. It's just called The Alphabetical Fugazi. And you can uh, chime in about this song and about future songs that we have coming up. I hope you'll join me for the next episode, which is going to be a very special episode when we'll be discussing the entire soundtrack to the documentary instrument. You won't want to miss this one. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last